Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. To me, I think the biggest element of a personal brand is to tie what you are doing or trying to do or the job for which you're applying, tying that to something about your background. There was an African-American student uh, who had not, by the way, said very much in the class. And we decided to randomly call on him and he said, you know, describe your brand. And he described his brand very succinctly. He had come from a very poor neighborhood uh, in which there were enormous health inequalities and health, uh, adverse health consequences. And he said, you know, he said, I went to medical school because I'm a black man and I want to bring medical help. I want to bring medical care to, to the black community. What a powerful brand, a sentence or two, which explains why he's not only that he's gone to fancy medical schools, which he has, and he's now in Stanford Business School, which he was, but why he was doing this, how he could tie what his mission was to his own life experience. It is my pleasure and privilege to welcome to the podcast one of the most popular and influential professors in the entire country and the author, most recently, of Seven Rules of Power, surprising but true advice on how to get things done and advance your career. From Stanford University Graduate School of Business, Jeffrey Pfeffer. Welcome, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you, Andrew, it's, and it's been a delight getting to know you. It's been a delight getting to know you as well and also learning from you because, holy cow, did I learn a ton from this book. <laughs> In other words, you're trying to tell me that had you read this book earlier, you would now be president. Well, I would be more powerful than I am now, uh, categorically. I can't, I can't believe that. But. <laughs> well, well uh, so we'll get, we'll get into the meat of this book um, because it's fascinating, but um, you open the book by talking about the resistance you get toward trying to teach someone about power, that it somehow seems dirty, nasty, objectionable, I don't want to know, <laughs> I don't want to learn. And yet this is the most popular oversubscribed course at, at Stanford, so now everyone feels like they have to know. And you give a great argument for why it's like, look, I don't care about uh, what your uh, motivations are. This is still stuff that you, you should uh, learn. Um, so what what is the argument you make to the people who think like power, like my even wanting power uh, makes me a bad person? Well, I think you put your finger on on why many people object to this. They have seen power used for bad. They've seen bad people use power to do bad things. And so they say, I don't want anything to do with it. So it's like, you know, if you saw somebody shoot somebody with a gun, you would say, well, I, want, I don't want anything to do with guns, even though you can use guns for target practice or hunting or, you know, for recreation, for all kinds of things. And so I think people confuse how power has been used um, with, uh, with the necessity for power in order to get things done. So Stanford Business School's motto, change lives, change organizations, change the world. As you know from your own, from your own experience, both in business and in politics, if things were going to change without influence, 
They would have already. So therefore, <laughs> so therefore, if you are going to make, the, for instance, the kinds of reforms in the electoral system that you're interested in, or, the, or, the, or, or if you want to try to somehow get people to, to have guaranteed basic income, or if you're going to get anything done, you know, clean up the climate or do whatever you want to do, it's going to require influence and power uh, because that's the necessity of social life. Uh, ain't that the truth? I'll tell you a funny story, Jeff. You'll appreciate this. But when I started my presidential run, uh, it was called UBI 2020, in part because I didn't want to make it about me. Uh, and then my team was like, yo, man, you got to call it Yang 2020 because uh, people are going <laughs> to so, so even from a guy who ran for president, like that, there was some resistance uh, to, <laughs> to, to, to owning it, which is your first rule is get out of your own way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you talk, and, and, and this is, I thought, was very, very relevant. So this is your fourth book on power, give or take. Um, uh, and you, you mention a critique that I think some people have, which is whether this is tied up with identity, whether this only applies to, let's say, uh, straight white men uh, or... Um, uh, or is it trying to get everyone to act like a straight white man or something along those lines? So what do you mean by get out of your own way? Well, there are, I think, a number of aspects of getting out of your own way. I think one aspect is, um, is, is being willing to do what it takes uh, to win in a competition. So we just had, uh, you know, the World Cup in soccer, or I guess it may still be going on. And there's a wonderful article by Sam Borden in the New York Times um, uh, basically about the, uh, the U.S. men's soccer team, at least at one point, being unwilling uh, to, in quotes, cheat or to do what many other soccer teams do, which is draw fouls. So, you know, the famous soccer players, Cristiano Ronaldo and, you know, all the others, Lionel Messi, if you touch them, on the on the soccer uh, on the soccer field, they fall down and they roll over and they act like I think the quote from the Sam Borden New York Times article is they turn niggling knocks into grim death. And the U.S. soccer team, so the U.S. soccer team said, that's not good sportsmanship. You know, we, we should not act like we've been, you know, severely injured if somebody basically just bumps into us and, and try to draw fouls. And I, you know, I think you need, you know, you need to see what your competitors are doing and you need to be willing to do what they're willing to do. Otherwise, you, in the case apparently in the U.S. men's soccer, um, you, you disadvantage yourself. And similarly, I think for all professional sports, and similarly for business. So you have to, I think the first piece of getting out of your own way is you have to be willing or at least entertain the idea of doing what the competitors are doing. And I think a second dimension of getting out of your own way is this idea, everybody wants to be liked. You know, so when you're like in kindergarten, at least when I was in kindergarten, you get grades on deportment and gets along well with others, you know, and, and, um, in the words of my friend Gary Loveman, who used to run Caesars, the casino company, if you want to be like it, a dog, a dog will love you unconditionally. Your job in the world of business or in the world of politics is not to win a popularity contest. Well, maybe in politics it is to get, to get the most votes. But it's, it's actually, to, particularly in business, it is to get something done. Nobody's hired you to be the nicest person in the room. You've been hired to execute strategy, to develop strategy, to build product, to sell product. You've been, you've been hired to do something and not necessarily to win a popularity contest. So that doesn't mean you need to be gratuitously a pain in the butt, but it does mean you need to be clearer about, you know, about making things happen. And that's your, so that's another uh, dimension of getting out of your own way. Well, yeah, when you talk about this rule, you also talk about people having um, these virtue lessons that if you keep your head down and do a good job, then you'll get noticed. And, and, and that's like a, it's like a form of character, really. And you even mentioned in the book that this is something that people of Asian descent often bring to the table. It's like, I'm, I don't need to self-promote or I'm bad at self-promoting. Um, I, I just need to do the work. And uh, that's what you think of uh, as desirable. Um, but that's actually uh, only half the battle, let's say. Uh, and you talk about how there's performance uh, and then there's um, this networking, politicking, practical 
aspect and they're complementary. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you do a good job, but nobody notices, it's like if a tree falls in the forest that nobody <laughs> hears it, you know, has it made any sound? So, so you certainly need to, you need to obviously to perform and you need to have technical skills, but those skills and your performance need to be recognized by your boss or in politics, by the voters. Somebody has to recognize uh, and see these virtues and, and what you've done. And your boss, by the way, or the voters, may not be paying attention to you all the time. So it does, so it does become incumbent on you uh, to make sure that people know who you are, what you've done, you know, what, you've, you know, what you're accomplishing. Yeah, this really was a thing for me uh, in transitioning to become a, a political candidate, Jeff. And my team used to drive them crazy. <laughs> it drove us all crazy where uh, I wasn't a natural self-promoter, which is ironic given that I was running for president. And there are a lot of people that, uh, you know, like just assume that if you're running for office, then you're uh, really into yourself uh, you're really narcissistic, <laughs> things like that. And so when I would give my initial stump speeches, um, I would just talk about facts and the ideas. Um, uh, and it took months for me to shift into doing stuff that was more about me. Uh, you know, and, and, and what's funny is I've gone through this arc now several times um, when I started Venture for America, it was the same thing where I like started this org. Um, and I was like, well, the org's idea speaks for itself. Um, and then it took my, uh, my staff saying, look, uh, for Venture for America to get to this level, Andrew Yang has to be at that level. So we need to get you out uh, on the conference circuit. And it was when my staff pushed me to do that that I said, okay. Like I felt like I had permission because literally they worked for me and they were like, look, if we're going to accomplish our goals, you're going to have to get out there. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Deb Liu, who wrote this book um, called um, – I'll think of a title in a second. Anyway, she now runs Ancestry.com and before that was a very senior executive in Facebook and is an Asian woman. And um, – I th the title of her book is Take Back Your Power. There and she it is. had Yeah, and she, and she had that same, you know, Deb, well, I met you actually through Deb. And she had the same issue. You know, I, I'm not going to be a self-promoter, whatever. And she tells the story in the book, and she tells the story when she comes to my class, of two projects she ran for Facebook. And one project, and they both equaled, they were both equally successful, and they were both financially significant to Facebook. And in the first project, she never really took any credit or told anybody the story. And the problem was her team all left because they felt, you know, I mean, the organization did not appreciate them because they were invisible. If, you know, and nobody appreciates something that's invisible. So what she figured out for the second project was that she had to tell the story, not just for herself, but for the team. That, yeah. that, when, that when she did not get any recognition, the team did not get any recognition. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and, right. and, and so she was not just not self-promoting herself. She was not promoting this team of people who had done this thing that accounted for 15% of uh, Facebook revenue. And nobody knew because, because she had not told the story. So it's something that you really owe your team. Yes. And, and you mentioned in the book, and one thing I, I love about your book is that it's uh, – so grounded in research and, and various social science studies. But you mentioned that people who are from uh, lower socioeconomic backgrounds um, also struggle sometimes with, with this uh, self-promotional aspect because they're more collectivist in bent. They're more about the group. And they can actually be prompted to become more self-promotional when they're told, look, like the group needs you to do this. Yes, that's it. And, it's, and, and of course, it's true. I mean, so, you know, you, you have, you know, and it's, by the way, been a pleasure to, to get to know you. You have a set of ideas. And unfortunately, for good or for ill, those ideas tend to be associated with an individual. And so if the individual does not promulgate, uh, you know, himself or herself and, 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 and what they're trying to accomplish, nobody will know. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. 
What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Which leads us to the second rule, very counterintuitive. Some people are going to hate, <laughs> hate this. But number two is to break the rules. Uh, and when I saw this was uh, this chapter header, I was like, "Wow, uh, you know, where is this going?" And then you bring in all of these examples around norm breaking. That if you do break norms, uh, you often get power. Yes. Um, and, and and I think the single biggest thing that you reference um, is is this thing. It's going to make everyone happy because it's so wholesome. But it's really just asking for help or asking for stuff is in some ways the biggest norm you can break because everyone's deeply uncomfortable asking for stuff. <laughs> that, that is certainly true. And the other point I make in that chapter, which I think is an important one, is that norms and rules tend to favor the people in power. So if you think about the profound social changes that have occurred in the United States, I mean, Rosa Parks broke the norm or maybe the rule, or maybe the law, of sitting in the back of the bus. You know, the sit-ins at Woolworths, for the, as part of the civil rights movement, broke rules about uh, that African Americans were not supposed to be at these lunch counters. Uh, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail was written while he was in jail. So he not only had broken norm, he apparently broke a law. Uh, Nelson Mandela became the father of South Africa while he was in prison. So, you know, I mean, if, if you are going to accomplish social change, um, you know, you, you, will, you will need a, on time, not necessarily to go to jail or whatever, but you will certainly need to challenge the prevailing ethos. And by the way, this is true in business um, in, a, in a different way. Almost all successful entrepreneurs, I'm sure this is true of you, See a way to recreate, restructure, reformulate products or industries and do it in a way that breaks with conventional wisdom. You know, so Southwest Airlines, you know, eschewed the hub and spoke system and flies point to point. My friend George Zimmer, when he ran the men's warehouse, you know, power and retail was always with the buyers. George said, my goodness, I realized one day that you only made money when you sold it, not when you bought it. And therefore, we had to put more emphasis on store operations. Whole Foods, you know, with John Mackey, um, you know, had this insight that people would pay more for food they wanted to eat. And since tastes vary, you know, from Boston to Austin to San Francisco or even within the San Francisco Bay Area, if you would permit store managers and the de departments within stores to, put, to carry the particular cheeses and meats and cuts of fish that people uh, in that particular area or from that particular uh, social or uh, ethnic group w were more fond of, you could actually have a much more successful grocery store business because because you would deliver what the people uh, particularly liked and their particular tastes and their particular flavors. So, so even in strategy, 
if you want to differentiate yourself, you have to be willing to defy conventional wisdom. Well, a, a lot of people thought it was uh, breaking some rule for me to run for president, though it turns out that there are only two rules to running for president. Uh, natural born U.S. citizen check and 35 years and older check. So there, there really is no other. Yes. Um, but people would ask me all the time. It's like, hey, like, you know, are you allowed to do this? Like that, there was like a, that, that in that case, it was like a, a social norm. Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, that was true for Donald Trump also. When Donald Trump began to run for president, he, he violated, well, he, of course, his campaign violates a ton of conventional wisdom, which is one of the reasons why it was successful. In part because people underestimated him. Yeah, yeah. completely. Uh, of course. I mean, he was an entertainer, you know, and Ronald Reagan also. These are, these, are, these are entertainers. They're not politicians who've been in politics for a zillion years. You know, they're not following the traditional route of starting out in the school board and then the state legislature and then the national legislature and then senator or whatever. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, 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 the third one, and I burst out laughing uh, seeing this. Uh, the third rule is show up in a powerful fashion. And I, I want to tell you a story about my poor beleaguered campaign manager, Zach Grauman, who, who months in said, um, uh, dude, we need to give you a makeover. We need to give you a new haircut. We need to give you uh, new clothes, like, uh, you know, new look, a new button. I had this uh, button that uh, like always was like tilted to the side, and no one knew it was like supposed to be a Y, but it was always on its side. Um, and 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 I resisted this mightily, Jeff, because you know I'm an adult man, and I'm like, uh, so I think my quote to him was like, you know, people know what I'm about. Like, no one cares what I I look like. Bernie Sanders looks like the professor from uh, Back to the Future. No one cares. Uh, and and he was like, no, you're wrong because Bernie is old and you're young. Like pe people judge you different. Um, but the other thing I didn't realize at the time is that Bernie's look is already a brand. Um, yes. and, and, and so Zach he looks like Larry me, David. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or Larry David looks like him. So, so, so Zach takes me to the, the shop and tailors me up and whatnot. Uh, and it made a big difference. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I so you're that. not talking strictly about, fashion in a clothing and grooming sense, um, you, you mean a lot of other things in terms of uh, presence, uh, body language, the type of words you use, etc. That's absolutely true. But, you know, after my wife died, um, uh, my friend Dana Carney, who's an expert actually in body language, said, Jeffrey, if you're ever going to attract a human to Bing, uh, particularly a, a woman of the kind that you want, you need to, you need to change your look. So she did... She did <laughs> She did to me a probably much more expensive version of, of, of what your campaign manager did for you, you know, putting me in, you know, fancier clothes that look better, etc. I mean, we know from research, height affects people's salary. We know that beautiful people actually do better in part because they're able uh, to build larger social networks uh, if you're physically attractive. So all the stuff that we think maybe shouldn't matter and maybe it shouldn't, in fact, does. Well, one thing you, you said that also, um, so familiar, I mean, as you can tell, I've, I've gone through journeys, and so a lot of this stuff felt resonant, <laughs> um, but, but it, it was to have a look. Yes. Uh, and, and, and you talked about um, a particular woman who was quite tall, so she wore heels, so she was even taller. Yes. Uh, or, or and, by the way, who... and by the way, she was an Asian woman. And, 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 and of course, Asians are generally seen, uh, are expected to be short. And so, and so she, that was my friend Laura Chow, who has been made partner recently at Canaan Ventures. And Laura said many people remembered her as the tallest Asian they had ever seen. And, you know, she, by the way, has a lot of other elements of her brand. She's obviously extraordinarily smart. But you, but you always would dress very fashionably and, you know, in the, even in the Silicon Valley context. And so, you know, she looked very professional and she stood out. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched 
with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, so this leads us to number four, which is create a powerful brand uh, for yourself. Another example you use, it's fun, I have personal experience with a lot of this. Um, so uh, in terms of creating a, a, a powerful or personal brand, um, Elizabeth Holmes actually had a very distinct look. Uh, it was a bit jobsy and it had like the black turtleneck um, and that sort of thing. Um, but the things that you detail about trying to create a personal, powerful brand, um, uh, I went, I'd gone through many of them, um, which were things around a blog, conference speaking, uh, writing a book if that's uh, applicable, uh, a lot of behaviors that end up marking you as an expert in some way. Yep. And, and also, to me, I think the biggest element of a personal brand is to tie what you are doing or trying to do or the job for which you're applying, tying that to something about your background. So, for, so I, you know, a good example with my friend Tristan Walker, Walker and Company Brands, which was bought by Procter & Gamble. Uh, Tristan is an um, African-American man um, who always had trouble um, shaving because of the uh, uh, African-American skin is different, and he would get razor bumps, and so uh, double-edged razors didn't work very well. And when he went finally into various drugstores and, and uh, stores, he saw that there was very few of them that had been designed for people of color either for men or for women. And so what the whole theory behind Walker and Company brands was here was someone, a Stanford MBA graduate, by the way, uh, here was someone who was designing products for himself and the people that he knew, the people in his community. And, and that made him, you know, when I talked to Jeff Jordan, the founder of Open Table, who was at that time working for Andr uh, Andreessen Horowitz, he said, we like to fund people who when you look at them, you say, these people are uniquely qualified to be, to be driving and building this kind of company. So who is better qualified to build a company with grooming products for people of color than someone of color? You know, who is better qualified? It's also interesting because Tristan comes to my class and there was an African-American student uh, who had not, by the way, said very much in the class. And we decided to randomly call on him, and he said, you know, describe your brand. And he described his brand very succinctly. He had come from a very poor neighborhood uh, in which there were enormous health inequalities and health, uh, adverse health consequences. And he said, you know, he said, I went to medical school because I'm a black man, and I want to bring medical help. I want to bring medical care. To, to the black community. What a powerful brand, a sentence or two, which explains why he's not only that he's gone to fancy medical schools, which he has, and he's now in Stanford Business School, which he was, but why he was doing this, how he could tie what his mission was to his own life experience. Yeah, so I've heard my brand described as a magical Asian man from the future who wants to give everyone money. Uh, so I was like, <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, but but uh, one of the things that, that has happened to me over the last number of years is I wear the same outfit all the time. Um, and, and even when I go out casually or I'm with my family, um, like now I'll wear either something that looks kind of similar to the, you know, blue jacket, uh, blue out, like I'm essentially wearing now, um, uh, or something that's forward party branded 
because uh, people will recognize me in public and then they'll uh, want to get a, a selfie. So what did happen is I, I, I was walking around casually at different times and then someone would get a picture and they'd be like, hey, look, Andrew Yang. And like, uh, you know, I wouldn't look like myself <laughs> <laughs> yep. in the sense. And then some people would take note and be like, hey, you know, he looks different. Like just walking around in sweats or, you know, whatever the heck. So I'm just like, oh, snap. Um, uh, so I'm just sharing with you, you know, like the, the lived experience. Um, but I, I think people having a brand and a hook and an identity um, and even a look, I, I genuinely think it does end up driving um, associations, uh, particularly in the era of social media, because, uh, you know, like pictures pop up everywhere. Yeah, and, and you would say, you know, I mean, you know, you know what a Coke can looks like. You know, you know, you know the symbol on the, on, on the Mercedes. I mean, you know, I, I, if you think of yourself as a product, and in some sense we are, you know, I mean, we are, we, we, we not, not in the sense that people are going to buy you, but in the sense that you stand for a set of ideas. And to the extent that you help people and reduce their cognitive processing, uh, you know, by, by standing for something, by having a simple tagline, you know, by whatever, uh, that all helps you stand out and, and become memorable, which is, of course, one of the things, I mean, you know, we, how do we measure brand? How do we measure the success of advertising campaigns? We measure the success of advertising campaigns by brand recognition. Yes. So you, so you want to look, you want to be recognized, you want to be, and you want that look to be associated with a set of ideas. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. How many books have you written at this point, Jeff? You've been a professor for like 20 plus years. Like how many books have you written? I wish 20 plus years. I've been a professor for 50 years, believe it or not. <laughs> anyway, I've written, I've written now. I'm working on my 17th book. Wow. That, that's incredible. So the, the first time I wrote a book, I'll, I'll relate this experience because it might be sure. um, fun. So I, so I started this nonprofit, uh, Venture for America. I get a call from a literary agent uh, saying, hey, I think you should write a book. Um, and then I think I don't have time for that um, because I'm trying to build this organization. And so I called the agent back and said, what do you need from me to actually write this book? And he said, I need a proposal. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, uh, a sample chapter, how the book's going to be sold, outline. And I was like, oh, it doesn't sound so bad. Um, so then I, I pulled that together. But I was just pumped that anyone would ever pay me to write a book. Like, you know, one of the offers I got actually, Jeff, was like, we will not actually give you an advance, but we will publish your book. It was just like, a, you know, like, we'll, we'll publish it. So then I, I write this book. And it does not take the world by storm. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, it, 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 but it was additive. Like, it, it was worthwhile. It did help the org. Um, it, it wasn't, you know, groundbreaking or earth-shaking or any of that jazz. Um, uh, but, but what was interesting is that then, when I decided to run for president of the United States, I call my agent uh, and I'm like, hey, I want to write a book about uh, the transforming economy and, and why I'm running for president. Um, uh, and so then we... It, he goes what's what's funny is like he goes and like takes this to publishers and publishers completely do not believe that i'm going to run for president or that it's going to go anywhere <laughs> he he was like like the, i was like the proposal it was like you know there was one publisher um who i still am, am so grateful to uh where he saw potential in that in in this book um that became um the more normal people and then when that came out by the way like also did not take the world by storm was not a big deal but then months and months later I was on the presidential debate stage and then they get asked, I get asked like, Hey, if you could give something to one of the candidates. And I just had this back and forth with Elizabeth Warren about like the automation manufacturing job. So I said like, I'd, I'd give Senator Warren a copy of my book. Um, and then I, I come off stage and then I, I get like a call from my publisher being like, Hey, your, your book just hit the, the New York times bestseller list because like, <laughs> you, you mentioned it like, like, like that made. and it had been out for, I don't know, like a year and a half at that point. So he was like, it's not normal. But, but I, I, I say this because 
what's funny is like I have reluctantly followed many of the lessons from your book <laughs> without knowing it. And it's interesting that you use the word reluctant because I hear in your stories, I th- Andrew, I hear in your stories examples of you did uh, you did exactly what you should do, but you didn't embrace it. So that's where you were back to rule one, get out of your own way. I mean, I mean you wound up doing, of course, things that were extraordinarily helpful uh, you know, to advance your ideas and to advance your agenda, but you didn't necessarily immediately embrace it. And so I think people listening to this podcast should learn the lesson, which is, you know, pay attention to Andrew, but, but don't do it reluctantly. <laughs> embrace it. Yeah, yeah. Outdo me, please, by all means. So there are some people who are loving this convo. Some people who are wincing. We're like, oh, like I don't know if I, I see myself in this. So uh, number uh, five is going to make them wince all the more because it's everyone's least favorite thing in the entire world. Uh, but rule number five uh, to advance your career and gain power is network relentlessly. And uh, everyone hates networking. And yet so many studies have shown that uh, networking pays off uh, in a very, very big way professionally, particularly when it comes to cultivating something called weak ties. So number one, why is networking so important? And number two, what are weak ties? So networking is important. So the way I guess I now describe it is the following. If, if leadership or management is getting things done through other people, it seems pretty obvious that the more other people you know, the more you'll be able to get done. I mean, so that's pretty straightforward. The importance of weak ties, people tend to associate with people that they're comfortable with. And the people that you're comfortable with are people that you know well and are probably similar to you in a variety of ways. Maybe they work with you. Maybe they're part of your family. Maybe they're part of your circle of friends. The problem with people who are closely tied to you is that they tend to know the same people and the same things that you do. And therefore, they do not bring you much new information. They don't bring you many new contacts, whatever. The people to whom you are weakly tied are the people who can provide you non-redundant information and non-redundant contacts. And of course, it's the non-redundant information that is the most valuable because it's telling you things that you don't already know. The non-redundant contacts are the most valuable because they can link you in to uh, circles of friends or donors or advisors that you wouldn't already know. I'm sure you have a ton of stories from your campaign about this, where where in order for you to run a successful presidential campaign, if you relied only on your friends and family, it wouldn't have gone very far. The part of of building a campaign organization is meeting new people to whom at the time you met them, you weren't closely tied. And many of those introductions, I'm sure, came from people with whom you were casually acquainted. And as you then meet more people, you expand your sphere of knowledge and you expand your sphere of influence. Yeah, it started out with friends and family. I, I wrote them an email and made some calls saying, hey, running for president. And then some of them would say, of? And then I would say, <laughs> United States of America. So, so it, it was uh, definitely a process. But you're right that the people that ended up coming through uh, were people um, – Oftentimes, I did not know that well at the get-go, and that if you were going to have any kind of success, you needed to get beyond your immediate circle really, really quickly. So I, I had a base background I knew I could rely on, which is like I knew a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, I, I knew people in the tech community. So I was like, okay, I can at least go through that crew. Um, but you go through whatever your crew is pretty quick, um, and, and so you need to, to expand the circle uh, equally quickly. That makes sense. I think that there are ways you can network that are um, more fun and less painful. Uh, and, and the book talks about how if you can make it enjoyable, you're more likely to do it. But it, it's to try and choose networking activities that you actually enjoy uh, and then try and uh, regard it as like an actual process with data uh, that you can hone, you can improve on. You can use technology. You can use spreadsheets. Like uh, all that stuff's inbounds because this, this stuff is actually part of your career. 
That's exactly right. And, you know, my friend who I've put on my podcast, I have a, a Pfefferon Power podcast, one of the first episodes was with John Levy, um, who's, um, who's, who hosts uh, the, these famous dinners, these influencer dinners. And he's written a book called You're Invited. And, and the You're Invited book has a lot of good advice on how to put on memorable events that people will want to come to um, and, uh, and, and, and expand your network. And he's basically, you know, he tells the story of how he got into this. And he said, I was in my 20s and basically not very distinguished and not going very far. And he said, you know, he said, I figured out that I was probably only going to live once and that I wanted to surround myself by the most interesting people in the world from whom I could learn and who I could enjoy their company. And then he said, you know, how in the hell am I going to get anybody? Uh, you know, how, how am I going to access these people? And he figured out putting on these events. And he, there was an article written about him in the New York Times. And now he's now written this book, You're Invited, that talks about how to put on these, these wonderful, interesting events and some of the principles for doing so. But he then, so he now has fun. So, so John Levy's job is going to dinners that, that other people host for him in their houses and that he doesn't even pay for or, or doesn't pay for very much of. You know, and, the, and the, the events don't cost that much. There's no private chef. You actually do your own cooking. Um, so, you know, I mean, so that I think would be one thing. The other book that I always tell people about is Keith Ferrazzi's book, Never Eat Alone. And the title says it all. Don't eat alone. So from my experience... Um, one of the best ways to build a network uh, quickly and build a brand and a bunch of other things. And, and one of the threads I've seen is that um, people who host events and people who uh, start companies or start orgs, I mean, there's a lot of overlap. Um, the, the, the training and skills actually um, end up serving you really well uh, in any context. So hosting something will get your name out there really quick. I agree with that. I think that's a great idea. Yes, which brings us to number six, which I love and it's true, is to use your power. Like, and the point you're making here is like, look, it, it, power is not a finite resource where if you use it, you use it up and then you have less of it. Uh, it actually generally is the reverse, that if you use your power or influence or network or whatnot, it actually enhances all of the above. I mean, that's correct because people want to be associated with success and the people want to be associated with people who are getting things done. So to the extent you use your power and you make things happen, then more people want to be associated with you. Helping other people is nine times out of 10, like a win, 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 uh, yep. you know, like all, all the way around, particularly if it's making connections. If you use your network in that way, your network does get stronger, particularly if it pays off. Uh, like it, it's not like, oh, you do have to use a filter. Like, you know, I mean, I get, I know a lot of people. So I get asked for introductions to various people all the time. A lot of them don't make any sense. And I, I'm not in the habit of making introductions that don't make any sense. <laughs> but, 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 but if it does make sense, I am thrilled to do it. Uh, and then sometimes it, pays off where someone will get back to me later and be like, thank you so much for introducing us because like now we're working together or, uh, you know, helping each other out. And, you know, if you think about, you know, presidents or, um, you know, or, 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 or executives, I mean, to the extent that executives of companies are able, you know, to successfully launch products, then, then they get more power because their brand gets built and they become more successful. And if, if an executive, you know, didn't use their power to get anything done, then they would, it would, it would go away. I mean, with, you know, this is old saying, with great power comes great responsibility. I think that's right. I think with great power comes the obligation uh, to do something with that power, to make something happen. You know, to build a business, to build a company, to launch a product, uh, to promulgate important ideas. You know, you, you, you need to do something with your power or else it'll disappear. Yeah, you, you open the book uh, with... This idea that for good things to happen, uh, more good people have to gain power. Yep, that's right. Which is a you know pretty. By the way, you're doing idea. better than my students. You could pass a test on this. I can tell. <laughs> uh, well, well, well. Thank you. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> it, it was 
I mean, like the stuff did feel very familiar to me. I mean, I, you know, I, I am a little bit further down the road than most of your students. And particularly because your staff had to push you to do a lot of this stuff. So. <laughs> um, sure. I've got a whole team around me trying to make me look good. That's another one of the joys of power is you, you have people who are trying to uh, make you look good at all times. So number seven uh, re- required me to actually do a little bit of uh, thinking um, understand that once you've acquired power, what you did to get it will be forgiven, forgotten, or both. <laughs> Which I was like, whoa, just seems to be suggesting that, uh, you know, but you, you uh, draw a bunch of examples about how, look, like after you get to a certain point, um, then you uh, kind of claim a narrative in a particular direction. And most people get on board if uh, you're in that position. Um, and you, you exa- use examples from both politics and business. I think that's right. I think, and the reason why I think that chapter, along with chapter one, is the most important is because they are, in fact, related to each other. Chapter one is get, you know, rule one is get out of your own way. And chapter, and the rule seven, which is that once you've acquired power, wealth, and success, people will forgive and forget how you got there. Is It helps, I think, people get out of their own way to recognize. I mean, many people say, if I do the things in this book, you know, I will be, you know, people will be jealous or resentful or you know, all kinds of things. And I point out that you're, if you're successful, they'll be jealous or resentful anyway. And that, that once you have power, many things are forgotten. You know, so there's Michael Milken, who's, um, you know, gone to jail. And one day I'm watching an Oakland A's game and he's introduced, he's in the broadcast booth, introduces a philanthropist. Martha Stewart also went to jail. I'm not recommending that people go to jail. And her brand has never been more valuable. You know, so I, you know, this doesn't say you should be, you know, whatever, but it does say that there is a social reality. I mean, the the example with which I open that chapter is the example of Lindsey Graham, who begins as a never-Trumper. And once Trump becomes president, he is, you know, he's right behind him. Totally flipped, yeah, turns. Totally flipped. And and this apparently fascinates all these New York Times writers. And they keep asking Lindsey, you know, who at one point said all these negative things. And his answer to them is, you know, Donald Trump is now the president of the United States and I want to be relevant. And so I am going to attach myself to him and become his, his, his new best friend. And you see this inside of companies. You see this inside of universities. You know, I don't want X to be dean or president of the university, but when they become that, you know, there's the reality and you, you change your opinion about them pretty quickly. So it, 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 it may not make people happy, and it certainly isn't, doesn't comport with what many people would like to be true, but it is, in fact, true. Yeah, and, and that's the thing about your book is that it, it's grounded in reality and facts and studies, uh, and you just try to present the world as it is. Uh, you present the way the world works as the way that, you know, like, here, here's how it works, and you have to understand it. And if you want to be a beneficiary, then here are some things you can do to, to be helpful. Uh, to yourself <laughs> and to whatever Others. organization or group or company you're, you're trying to help. Um, certainly for me, there are uh, all sorts of positive things I, I want to see happen. Um, and well, one of my frustrations um, is, I have a lot of frustrations actually, but one of them is that there, 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 there are people who want uh, good things to happen, um, uh, but aren't actually doing any of the things that would be required for any of those things to happen. And so I'm like, 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 do you want to feel good about yourself in a narrow <laughs> way? Or do you want to try and make the good things happen? Because I, I think we can make the good things happen, but it's going to require like a couple of different behaviors and maybe working with people that don't necessarily uh, see eye to eye with you on everything under the sun. I, if you look at successful entrepreneurs, for the most part, they are so focused on executing against their vision. Steve Jobs was like this also that they oftentimes do not, you know, pay a lot of attention uh, to anything other than accomplishing their vision. So Steve Jobs was all about bringing certain products to market. And was he hard on the people who worked for him? Absolutely. Was he always, you know, a model of, um, you know, decorum or, you know, this, that, or the other thing? Of course not. And he was, I think, I think people... 
People who make things happen start with this ambition to make things happen, and the ambition causes them to focus a lot on the ends and less so on the means. And we can have a philosophical discussion about means and ends, uh, but the point is that I think, you know, I think, I think the, the drive to make something happen, to make some change in the world, to bring a product to market, to, to create a company, uh, you know, to create a political party to create whatever requires a lot of ambition, a lot of drive, and a lot of focus. Because otherwise, when you have the inevitable setbacks, which there will be, you know, the, the failures and the things that don't work and the opposition and the, all this stuff, in order, to, in order to overcome that, you have to have, um, you have, to have enough drive uh, to, to produce the persistence and the resilience that I think at the end is what really determines success. Uh, Jeff, you, you've seen so many uh, incredible organizations rise, in some cases fall, been a part of history, trained generations. You've written 17 books. This is your fourth on power. Uh, I'm sure you're always learning. Like, what, what do you have coming up next? What can people look forward to from you, and how can they follow you and your work? Well, they can follow me by, um, uh, you know, I have a, a personal homepage, uh, JeffreyPfeffer.com. Uh, they can look at the podcast on power, Pfeffer on power, which is actually literally PfefferonPower.com, and it's also on all of the major um, podcast channels, Apple, Spotify, etc. Uh, the book I'm working on now is how companies who pay for more than U.S. more than half of U.S. healthcare could, if they would treat the purchase of healthcare like they treat the purchase of everything else, actually do much to improve the U.S. healthcare system. We don't have to wait for single payer or all these other policy reforms. They might be helpful, but I don't think they're likely to get passed. And in the meantime, companies which are paying for all this stuff uh, for themselves could actually, uh, if they would um, measure things and hold people accountable, could improve a lot about uh, healthcare in the United States. So that's the book I'm currently working on. The big theme to me, one of the things I try and deliver to folks is, look, change is coming. Um, we might as well make it good changes as opposed to bad changes. And I think that's actually... Uh, really the the lesson from your book and your work. Um, thank you so much for doing what you do and for helping people live better lives. You know, you talk about this and we, we didn't mention it, but it's important. Um, being happy in your role professionally and feeling like you have agency and control uh, leads you to be happier, healthier, more content. Uh, and, and that's what we should want for everybody. That's exactly right. Also leads to a longer lifespan. Also leads to longer lifespan. We we can, uh, you know, uh, uh, all do what we want for longer, like Jeff here. <laughs> Jeff, I will see you uh, when I'm next out west, and thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for the for the privilege of being on this show, and thank you for the privilege of uh, of of knowing you. It's been it's it's really an honor getting to know you. Jeff's book again, Seven Rules of Power, surprising but true. Rule advice on how to get things done to advance your career. It's a fascinating book, and you can't help but learn a lot from it. Thank you. It's been, it's, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>